You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Graham Richardson. Great to be back with you on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm here for the next few days. And over the next couple of hours, it's a happy Halloween, by the way. I'm not in costume. Everybody else in the station here in Ottawa is. With the exception of me and producer Sam, because we are really serious people. Love Halloween. Got my blow-ups out last night. So the secret on the blow-ups, right? For years now, I've been buying them on Halloween. And they're 50% off. And you get the last ones. And then you... So I, I've, I've got four. So it's really obnoxious. Uh, came back to the house last night and there's a three-year-old in my driveway just in awe of my witch with the spinning eyes and the churning cauldron with the crooked smile. I love the blowups. Anyway, uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, It is um, a scary story unfolding at the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. This is happening here in Ottawa. It has national implications. If you haven't been following it, essentially, um, the Emergencies Act replaced the War Measures Act. And under the Emergencies Act, which had never been used until the trucker convoy, um... You must hold a public inquiry to justify why you needed the Emergencies Act. So far, we've heard from um, police chiefs. We've heard from various perspectives, uh, OPP. Uh, we have not heard from uh, Brenda Lucky and the RCMP yet. We haven't heard from the federal cabinet and Prime Minister Trudeau yet. We will. But... On Friday and to, again today, we heard from former police chief Peter Slowly, who resigned in the midst of the worst of the Freedom Convoy, um, as he was essentially, in his words, uh, the public had lost confidence. All three levels of government had lost confidence in his leadership. To call his performance today combative and defensive, I think, is an understatement. It... Um, Friday was his evidence in chief, where he told his story through his lawyer. You you may have seen he teared up talking about the impact this had, this horrible event from a policing perspective and from a community perspective for many people, this horrible event had on his officers. It was minus 30. Uh, The disinformation was rampant, and it was much of it targeting police. It did. And he... uh, broke down and cried when he talked about the impact on the constables on the street and those working the beat and trying to maintain order as they were basically overwhelmed and they couldn't maintain order. They couldn't maintain control of the streets. Today was a very different tone. The reason um, the lawyer for the police service was cross-examining him. And we we got a couple of clips here and I just wanted to, I just wanted to run one or two, just to give you a sense of how the morning went so far. This is former police chief of Ottawa, Peter Slowly, cross-examined by the Ottawa Police Service lawyer. Chief is looking for emails to support. We have purposely left him out of the information loop on the demo coming. Yeah, and again, if these are acting Deputy Chief Ferguson's notes, I think I said several times on Friday, I can't understand why, 
why she was writing these things and what was in her mind. But if that's her interpretation, that is her interpretation. That certainly wasn't my intention at well, all. She's, she said you were looking for emails to uh, say that people intentionally left you out. I can see what she wrote. I certainly never gave those directions. I never sought emails for that purpose. I completely deny that assertion as I have before and will continue to do so. That's just one piece of it. Here's another quick piece of it, again, to give you a sense of the tone. Please, please, please show me the statement, then, sir. Just you, you keep referencing statements, and then you say they're in the record, or you'd be happy to put them up. If you're going to reference the statement, sir, please put it on the screen for me. Back and forth, back and forth. At one point, he is confronted with a note from a senior officer who says that slowly said he will cut off the genitals of this senior officer and use them as bookends. Slowly said, I would never say something like that. Um, the reason I'm telling you all of this to give you a pic, like this is a, this is a look behind the scenes at the worst possible moment for Ottawa police, overrun, international news, no control. And we are getting a picture of, in many ways, why Chief Slowly had to resign. From one perspective, he is lashing out. He is, um, he is blaming everyone around him. He is yelling at um, officers underneath his command, senior officers. From his perspective, he is dealing with an unprecedented event that he believes is a national security issue or a an, an issue of national importance, and his police force does not have the resources to deal with it, and he is dealing with extraordinary pressure on him and on his officers. Um, the the other thing that is is very important here that is getting a significant amount of play is the role of communications and the firm navigator, which was used by the Ottawa police and the Ottawa police service and the police board. And today we found out that, um, after months of many people trying to get the cost and what the contract entailed, they billed the Ottawa police service and the board $185,000 for basically two weeks work. It was intense work. It was at the height of, uh, of the convoy, but we hadn't heard that before. And the police service lawyer suggesting to slowly that the communications experts were driving operations, were impacting operations, slowly vehemently denies that. All of this to paint you a picture of where the testimony is going and why it's important. The reason it's important, just like the G20 in Toronto, it is a a look back at police tactics, at what went on. And in this particular case, the most important thing is a look back on whether the federal government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act or not. And keep in mind, this is all testimony. This is all perspectives of people that are giving their version of events and having those versions challenged we don't know what the judge is going to say about that. We don't know what the judge is going to accept and reject. To call it a fascinating look for anybody interested in what went on last February is, is, is an understatement. We rarely get this kind of granular, direct, behind-the-scenes 
notes between ministers, mayors, the mayor of Ottawa testifying, the head of um, the head of the uh, police commission recording conversations with the mayor and playing them. Um, the uh, the the billings for Navigator. It's it's basically how things are working behind the scenes as the whole world's watching. I remind you that the Ottawa convoy and the closure of the border at Windsor were the largest stories in the world. It happened just before the invasion of of Ukraine. So it it is it is an international glare on how how it possibly could happen. The other question that we don't have answered yet and it hasn't really directly been placed in front of slowly at least not yet. But what whose call was it to let them park? We've heard a lower officer say that the option to do that was there because they assumed they were going to leave in 3 days even though there's testimony and evidence all over the place that this was not a 3-day protest. The other thing that's interesting is they've they've treated this early on like any other protest, and it clearly wasn't. Marike Walsh from the Globe and Mail is covering this. Um, she was on the ground as well during the actual protest itself. She's going to join us. They're on break right now, the Commission of Inquiry, and she's going to join us right after the break to talk about uh, slowly his demeanor and and what her impressions are of him and his evidence and where it's going, because in the next few days we'll hear from the convoy organizers themselves. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. He got angry and told me this was all political. Again, I'm sorry, but I'm just amazed at the amount of liberties that an acting deputy chief, a superintendent, relatively newly promoted superintendent, would take in terms of interpreting my intentions. But none of this is accurate. Uh, Well, she's saying that that's what you said, and you were angry. And nobody else made notations of that, so she seems to be the only one making those interpretations. And that was how it was going. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. That was Chief slowly being cross-examined by Ottawa Police Service lawyer all morning uh, this morning, basically uh, being uh, having one of his subordinates' notes thrown at him, saying uh, one of the key uh, parts of the testimony last week was that slowly believed RCMP and OPP weren't at the convoy to help them out. They were there to serve their political masters and somehow remove Ottawa police as the police of jurisdiction. Um, We are getting a really ugly picture behind the scenes at the worst possible moments for uh, the Ottawa police, and it keeps going. Marika Walsh is a political reporter with the Globe and Mail. She's been watching this um, and was there on the ground uh, last February. I think that's the last time I saw you face-to-face. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thanks, Graham. How are you? Good, good. This is quite something. Um, and I know, uh, well, first of all, what's your take on slowly so far, bo- both Friday and today? What kind of a picture are we getting of the former Ottawa police chief? I think we're getting um, uh, it, we're getting 
two pictures, and it depends on who you want to believe. I think, first of all, it um, becomes more and more difficult to fully take Mr. Slowly at his word because he denies virtually every accusation thrown at him from multiple different policing agencies. And so if everybody is wrong except for you, I think that raises some questions. Mm -hmm. But he disputes the characterizations made about him being angry, made about him using coarse language, made about him uh, being aggressive in meetings, and simply says none of those things are correct or, or are mischaracterized or are too broadly characterized. And so there's always this dispute about what is said by witnesses and also, importantly, what is contained in the notes that were made on a daily basis by his subordinate. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, his subordinates say that he was territorial. They say that he sort of became very controlling, very micromanaging during this process. And so we're, you know, there's a lot of blaming going on, a lot of shifting of responsibility going on. And I think it's not so far doing much to bolster Ottawa residents' faith in their police force. Yeah. And what's interesting, and this is just my impression watching for a few hours this morning, he looked like that on the stand today. He looked angry. He looked defensive. He looked... Uh, like someone who, if he wasn't on camera, might blow his stack at some of the questions. That's my impression of it, but certainly it, it, it kind of bolstered the other evidence that I'd heard from his subordinates that just like you say, that they suggest he was micromanaging, had a very bad temper and was under extreme pressure and wasn't being very effective as a leader. And and the fact that he left in the midst of this and had to resign I, I mean, you have to put all of that up against his words saying there's nothing to this. And, and I hear you that there's a lot on one side and only it seems him on the other. Right. Now, on the flip side, you could say that there is um, some self-preservation happening on the other side because yeah. the other side also has a job. And so he does become a much easier scapegoat for the fact that he has left the police service. But no matter how you look at it, Graham, I think the point is that the infighting and the recrimination and the lack of professionalism that appears to be detailed in these meetings at such an important time when the city had descended into lawlessness, as the former chief himself has identified, raises, I think for me, much more questions about what others then did. It's clear from the testimony so far that the Ontario Provincial Police, for example, saw this sort of dysfunction internally. They noted it. They sent that up their chain of command. And yet the province never at one point said, Ottawa doesn't get to do this anymore, and the OPP need to take over command. And at the same time that the Ottawa Police Service did not ask for the OPP to come in and take over, they were also within days of the convoy coming already talking about coming, calling in the military. So there's a lot of conflicting evidence of the police saying, oh, we didn't need to relinquish control. But at the same time, they were looking at extreme measures very early on, well before this thing ended, and other superior policing agencies, and frankly, the government of Ontario, did not seem to really strongly step in and decide that enough was enough. Mm. This has been a fire hose of news like Mm -hmm. extraordinary, kind of like the convoy itself. (laughs) Um, uh, 
I, I think you've written about Brenda Lucky and about some of the things mm-hmm. that she, that she has texted back and forth between the OPP commissioner. Like there's any number of things that we haven't heard from her yet. Can you mm-hmm. just talk a bit about Brenda Lucky, the RCMP's role, and also all of these documents that are being tabled and the story they're telling? Certainly. So there's a few things going on. I would actually say this is a much bigger fire hose than the convoy coverage itself yeah. back in February, which is saying a lot, Fran, because as we're dealing with eight to 10 to 11 hours of testimony every day from witnesses, there's also hundreds upon hundreds of documents and thousands upon thousands of pages being tabled every day of this inquiry. And all of those documents are either linked in or tied to the testimony. And so figuring out that puzzle piece of how it all fits together putting some sort of timeline of who said what when is very challenging. But I think your point on Brenda Lucky is that those texts that we saw last week between her and the top Ontario police officer, Commissioner Thomas Creek, show that the government was losing faith, that the police had strong questions internally about what Chief Slowly was doing, what the Ottawa Police Service was doing, and and that they didn't seem to really decide that that should then be escalated to then taking over. In fact, Brenda Lucky said she didn't want her force to take over. And she also at times talks about uh, using Canadian military members, but in RCMP uniform. She talks about going to a different messaging app where the text messages can be deleted. Right. So there are a lot of questions for her as well. And a lot of questions around the credibility right up the chain and what they were all doing. And so far, I think that citizens of Ottawa, citizens of Canada have seen a lot of finger pointing between the different policing agencies and not at a lot of anybody taking accountability to the point where Chief Slowly was asked several times, or Mr. Slowly, I should say, then Chief, uh, he was asked on Friday by the Commission Council what should you personally have done differently? And he could not come up with one thing except to point out that there's new research on the need for sleep for executives in, in high-stress situations. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it just um, shows how complicated the picture is uh, for the commissioner to actually decide and come to any conclusions out of this inquiry, but also just sort of the infighting, the recriminations, and the lack of professionalism within the Ottawa Police Service. Yeah. And before I let you go, my striking memory of those cold days on the streets, my biggest question is, why haven't they done anything? Why did it take so long? And I think, mm-hmm. I think part of the answer is they were busy fighting with each other behind the scenes. Right, which, which goes to this question that ties into the province's response, because... Yeah. If they saw that happening, why didn't the province step in? The Attorney General of Ontario can direct the OPP to take over command in Ottawa. That is one of the things, the items, the action points allowed under the Police Services Act. Mm -hmm. And so looking forward to Premier Doug Ford fighting the request to testify at this commission, at some point these questions need to be put to somebody in Ontario to explain why they didn't take over faster, why they let this run out as long as they did, or did they try and, and, inter, and intervene or, or get more resources in? And it was rejected. We don't really have that clear picture yet. Maybe they did try to do something. But ultimately, they do have that authority. And we know that that did not happen. 
Marika Walsh with the Globe and Mail. You get a sandwich now. You get a break. Thank you for coming on. Talk soon. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Glad you're with us. Um, No matter where you are in the country, uh, I think it is fair to say in the last six months, we have all uh, taken stock of our healthcare system, whether it's staffing, whether it's um, treatment for your kids or your aging parents. And many of us have seen the confidence that we had in Canada's healthcare system as a whole, um, if not evaporate, severely degrade. Um, Janet Waterman's an Ottawa woman. I was contacted about Janet's story and her parents last night, and she's been gracious enough to join us now. And I know, uh, Janet, your family is in a very, very difficult situation. Um, your, your parents are in their nineties. Do I have that right? And they are not well. Um, and they seem to be caught in, in a system in sort of a no man's land. Can you tell us where they are now and what the situation is? Yes, I can. Thank you. Uh, they are currently in an acute care ward in the civic hospital. Uh, they were brought into emergency Saturday night. My brother and I stayed for about 11 hours to ensure they were both admitted. There was some talk of admitting only my mother. Mm. So my father's terribly frail, and, and we thought they had to stay together. And we managed to achieve that. <laughs> well, that's good. So they were admitted in hospital. Tell me about what happened. Like, they are elderly and frail. Um, there was, did uh, one of them fall? Was there a yes. fracture? Yes. My mother fell on October the 12th, getting into bed and broke her leg in two places. The following day, my father was... A, uh, positive for COVID, and so was she shortly afterwards, of course. Um, the residents where they live, the retirement home, uh, called and said if we couldn't uh, find a way to make them eat and drink, they would have to send them to the hospital. Um, so I, we came over, my fiance and I came over and uh, tried to take care of them as best we could that night. Then we called in some high-priced overnight help for the next few nights, and my sister and brother came on board, and we all covered off meals. The residence is in a COVID outbreak, so their staff is too shorthanded to help my parents properly, so we had to come and do it. Your mother's in her 90s and has a broken leg. She's not, Yeah, and she was uh, sent home without any pain medication, I might add. <laughs> so, okay, so... So they ended up sending them to the hospital. Is that right? Um, In the past two weeks, my mother's been sent to the hospital five times and returned to Redwoods four of those times. The hospitals treat any immediate critical thing and then get rid of them as quickly as they can. Redwoods is a retirement home. It's not a nursing home. They do have a third floor for extra care, My parents moved into that place particularly because they thought they could age in place and when they needed extra help, they would move down to the third floor. However, third floor is uh, overwhelmed and I think they're starting to put people on fourth and second at this point. So yeah, they don't want them. The Redwoods don't want them back. I have 
94 and 96 year old parents who are homeless right now. Did you ever think um, you'd be in this situation? No, I never, I cannot believe this is happening to us. My parents planned everything so well, so they wouldn't be a burden to anyone. They, you know, they're contributing members of our society their whole lives, uh, you know, frugal, saved, invested to make sure they, they wouldn't be a burden to anyone. And now the system is failing them horribly. Did your mother get her leg treated? She, she came home in an air cast, uh, like a, with a, one of those walking plastic things over it, and was told to return the following week t- for assessment. We, I just couldn't see moving her. She was in such agony from other things. She has many things wrong with her right now. Mm. Um, so it took two weeks, took her back. Guy wanted to do, a, a, I don't know, surgery, put a pin in. I said, no, please just patch her up. So she has a cast on right now. She doesn't remember that she's broken her leg, in fact. Mm. This is the worst nightmare for kids for any <laughs> of any age, having to go through this with your parents. I, I couldn't imagine a worse death. I couldn't. They wanted nothing more than just to be able to lie down together and hold hands and drift away at the same time. They have been together since they were 17 and 18 years old, married for 72 years, dated for five before that. They don't want to be without each other, and I don't think they can be. But the suffering is shocking. Have you discussed... uh medically assisted death yes actually um dad mentioned it to me about a month or so ago i sent him the link and he had a look at it and he thought well it's pretty involved so we thought well yeah we'll sit down and we'll all go through it together and and get it worked out but uh didn't happen before the accident and so it's too late now and my mother's too confused to be able to uh, consent at this point so, and I only, with the utmost respect, I only ask that because uh, in some of the communication you had with someone I know, you had mentioned that. That's why I asked that. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems like that's not an option. Not they now. can't go yeah. back to their retirement home um, or, and, and and now they're in the hospital, but because you pushed and made sure they, like, were they just in the emergency room cur- curtained off? They were for that evening. Uh, I think I think mom was taken up to a room maybe about 10 o'clock. I, I, the timing is sort of mm-hmm. a blur now. Mm-hmm. And dad stayed overnight. They said it might take a week for him to get a bed. And it wouldn't necessarily be near her. But when I went up with the uh, orderly to get her settled, um, I heard the other patient in the room tell the nurse that she'd been there 10 days and she was hoping to leave the next day. So I grabbed that little piece of information and went down to emergency with it, of course. Mm-hmm. And I, and we stayed until he was admitted. If he you had stayed, not, if you had not been there, it, this would have completely changed, could have changed. My fear is he would have been sent home like as they had been every other time they've been to the hospital recently. And he's, I thought he was too frail to manage. Well, he couldn't manage on his own. There's no way. And he couldn't get help at Redwoods because they were overburdened as well. You know, everything is crashing down around us. Despite their excellent planning, I guess they just didn't plan on how to actually take that final step, how to get there, you know? 
what for people listening now um did you did you expect this from our healthcare system for your parents? No, no, right? no. Yeah. I like most Canadians. I think we have the greatest healthcare system in the world. That's what we've been sold. You know, that's what we've been told. But we don't. The regular people like you and me, we're we are just struggling to deal with this system. I don't. I don't think my mother's doctor would let his mother suffer like this. I think if he could hear her screaming all night long for help and and to be allowed to die, he would probably do something to help her, wouldn't he? And and the same with perhaps you know all those important politicians up on the hill. <laughs> you know, I don't uh, think their mothers are going to go through this. Uh, what are you going to do? <sighs> well. Um, well, today I don't. Today I have several meetings with the uh, at the Civic Hospital with social workers and palliative care people. Um, we have well, they of course the hospital wants to get rid of them. Um, we'll have to look for a place where they can go and get the care they need. And where we're doing that probably tomorrow, we're going to go see a couple of places and see what they look like. Yeah. Janet, I, I know you're in crisis, and it's very hard, and I appreciate you sharing a story with us. I appreciate you listening, and I don't want this to happen to other people. This shouldn't happen to anybody. It's awful. In China, where I saw my mother-in-law die a horrible death, I thought I just saw the worst death of anyone I was ever going to see. But now I'm watching my parents go through something much worse in what you know, we think is a terrific healthcare system, and clearly it's failing. I have met wonderful, caring people within the system, but their hands are tied by bureaucracy. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. It is Halloween. Oh, you know why I heard a story about this song, Thriller, and the prelude to it, Vincent Price? Uh, he did the, uh, the long version, the voice at the beginning of it. So he was told at the time, he had two options. He could take a flat fee of like $25,000 or he could take a portion of the royalties. He took the flat fee. That is horrific because it turns out he didn't know, of course, no one knew how big it was going to be. It would be several hundred million dollars by now, uh, in royalties if he had taken the other one. Anyway, I digress. I digress. It is Halloween. We love Vincent Price. And that uh, famous song by uh, Michael Jackson on that massive album. Um, part of Halloween, of course, and the fall in, is the harvest and the growth of pumpkins. And every year we have this, who's got the biggest gourd? Well, Dave Chan has won BC's largest pumpkin contest two years in a row. He grows giant pumpkins in his backyard in Richmond, BC. And just because it's Halloween and we love our pumpkins, Dave's on the line. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for joining us. No problem. Tell me about your secret without giving away your secret, and how big <laughs> do your pumpkins grow? Actually, uh, 
There's no secrets, and uh, I sort of tell anybody that wants to know, but I, I study soil science a lot, and, and it all starts, you know, from the roots up. Okay. So we do, especially last year when I grew a 1,911-pounder, uh, it was COVID, and we were stuck at home, and I decided that I was going to do a lot of soil analysis. So... That's a pretty extensive uh, test on the soil, giving about 15 parameters, and and you're going to learn what to do with it. So really, it's a lot of studying, and and I have a science background. So yeah, I enjoyed doing that, and we fine-tuned our soil so much that uh, in 2,000 square feet, uh, I might add half a pound of boron, for instance, What's Most boron? People don't even think about that, and don't even know what it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we actually really, really get down to the science of the soil. What is so, what is what yeah. is boron? Is it a nutrient? Is it a fertilizer? <laughs> what is it? Boron is an element, and it's uh, what they call a micronutrient. So the macronutrients are NPK, the nitrogen uh, uh, phosphates, and potassium. But there's lots of micronutrients, and boron is one of them. So there's iron and manganese and uh, uh, all kind magnesium, you name it. So there's a lot of things that you have to take into account. If any one thing is out of balance, then uh, you know you're not going to grow anything properly, mm-hmm. including a tomato. But uh, yeah. The so pumpkin growing is a fine science, actually. So when you talk about a 1,900-pound pumpkin, that was last year? Yes. So is that like the size of a porch? How big is 1,900 pounds? <laughs> it's roughly five feet wide, um, four feet uh, deep, and about uh, three and a half feet high. Wow. That's a big yeah, pumpkin. It is. And how did you build and, a special? Sorry. And how did you do this year? Like, like, are you are you close? Uh, this year, uh, uh, last year was an experiment. This year was to try to repeat it to see if uh, my 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 theories and methods were were sound and almost did it. Our weather in 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 BC was quite bad to start, but. I think I did accomplish what I tried. The The biggest one I grew this year was 1,728, and the smallest one was 1,676 wow. pounds. So is this yeah. a, um, is this a, it, is this like everything else? There's like societies on the internet and communities of pumpkin growers all over the world. And um, <laughs> like, it the, sounds like it's, it's a very precise thing to do. It is, and and you can have lots of fun growing a 500-pound or a 1,000-pound pumpkin, but if you want to compete on on sort of the world and local uh, contests, then uh, obviously bigger is better. Mm-hmm. But uh, the neat thing about pumpkins, there's one site, it's called bigpumpkins.com, <laughs> and uh, that is one of the sites that go around the world that many, many, many growers uh, follow. So you can see who's growing a pumpkin in New Zealand or Ohio or Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the neat thing where 
where and you can uh, get they all have to post their email addresses when they do post something on the blog and so I've connected with people all around the world I've visited pumpkin patches in California Washington England and uh, wherever I can so these people are very friendly and welcoming so yeah <laughs> you're you're interested obviously in the science behind it and the trick and the, you know, getting the best growth. I'm sure they are all as well. Um, do you have time to do this? Like, is this is obviously not your day job. Uh, no, I'm 77 years old and I've been retired since uh, I was 65. And uh, so I have lots of free time. I have lots of hobbies and I enjoy keeping busy. Mm-hmm. So uh, digging the dirt part of it is like my outdoor gym. <laughs> and, uh, yes. Um, and this is, this might be a silly question, but people want to know, and I want to know, like, what do you do with all that pumpkin after it's harvested? Well, it, it, it's kind of been an interesting ride. We've built Cinderella carriages that are actually quite beautiful, um, and uh, kids sit in them and have fun posing in them. And those were uh, back a few years ago. The 1911, uh, I also am a wood turner, so I made a, a 16-inch um, um, wooden Olympic gold medal, and my wife sewed the uh, ribbon for it, and we just hung it around the pumpkin, and a lot of people came to have a look at it. <laughs> Um, and interestingly enough, somebody asked me that same question. What are you going to do with your pumpkin? And uh, I said, I don't know. He says, well, I know a pig farmer that would take it. So I contacted a pig farmer who had 60 pigs. And uh, normally he would feed them 400 pounds of grain per day. He said the pumpkin fed 60 pigs for two whole days. <laughs> so wow. There you it go. It didn't go to waste. It didn't go to waste. Pumpkin. Yeah. Uh, love talking to you, Dave, on a Halloween, and thanks so much for uh, sharing this with us, and uh, good luck. Okay, it's been fun. Thank All you. All right. Dave Chan is uh, BC's largest pumpkin contest. He's won it two in a row. 1,900 pounds. That's a lot of pumpkin. That's a lot of pumpkin. Um, when we come back, Elon Musk and Twitter. What changes do you think there's going to be? and Early indications are things are going as predicted. Will you walk away from Twitter or stick with it? Stay with us. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. One of the stories we're following is Twitter. What has it been, three days for Elon Musk? Four days? So I'm I'm a fairly heavy user of Twitter. Um, I'm in the news business, and I use it as a news updating sort of stream service, right? Like when something's happening, I'm covering, uh, or we're covering as a team. It's, it's a great way to... Um, 
you know, to keep up to date with developing testimony, uh, investigations, uh, fires, floods, whatever it is, because it's minute by minute as opposed to a full news story, right? Which takes uh, quite a while to write and then push out on social media by other companies. Anyway, um, it's it's a it's a maddening place because it warps your sense of what's important and 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 who the audience is because it's it's largely on the political side, full of partisans, and and you get a you get a uh, it's full of partisans for media, for sports, um, politics, all sorts of things. And y- you you get a very intense view of the world. Elon Musk has bought this company now. He's fired the top executives uh, or packaged them out is probably more accurate. And he is tweeting about how he's going to change things. Um, some of the changes, which are quite interesting. Uh, to say the least. I've got a blue tick mark beside my name. I think that means I'm verified. I got it a few years ago. Uh, Elon Musk is talking about selling that blue tick mark. If I want to keep it as verified, um, I'm going to need to pay $20 a month to do that. The number of subscriptions I have, I will not, I will not pay $20 a month to keep a blue tick mark beside my profile on something like Twitter. Maybe other people will. He's also talked about bringing back that short-lived video. Not short-lived, they had 200 million subscribers. Um, Social media changes so often, it's difficult to keep track of it. But there's a short video um, service that was bought by Twitter and then shelved. And now he's talking about bringing it back. Um, There's Twitter Blue, which is the subscription service. He's talking about quadrupling the price of that and the use of that. And also more contentiously is the freedom of speech slash hate speech that he's accused of allowing to continue on Twitter unabated, that he has essentially uh, dismantled the somewhat rudimentary or um, depending on your perspective, um, the, the way Twitter was set up to take down hate content. Some people said it was far too slow, far too, um, slow to react to really hateful stuff. Other people say, you know, it, they were fine with it. Musk clearly believes it's a big waste of time, at least at a certain level. So, um, I want to know from you, text us now at 71010, 71010's our text. What do you make of all this? Do you use Twitter or is it just too much of a cesspool of anger that you've turned it off? I know people who have turned their backs on it completely and put it away. We just had a mayor's race here in Ontario, uh, municipal elections all across Ontario. Here in Ottawa, we had a mayor's race. The polls, public polls, the very few of them were showing a close race and it it turned out not to be close. And if you went on Twitter though, um, the losing candidate, Catherine McKenney, had a, her, their supporters had a very, very strong base on social media and particularly on Twitter. If you only looked at Twitter, um, you would think things were going one way when in fact the voters were not on Twitter and they were going the other. I think it's also skewed for sports fans. Like I know people at TSN, all the sports fans out there, who absolutely on trade deadline day, they 
it is indispensable a way to push out um, reaction, to break news. You know, all the TSN Sportsnet broadcasters, they are breaking it on Twitter first and then they almost, and then they go on television to talk about it. That's been, that's been the way for a long time. I think paying for the blue check mark makes sense because most people with a check use the service for professional purposes. That text from Oakville. That's certainly me. I don't use it for a lot of personal, really. Um, but I, it's a way to track how people are reacting to stories, what stories are out there, and um, what, what's, what's happening going forward. Even on Elon Musk taking over Twitter, the best place to find this stuff out is on Twitter, it seems. Uh, I'm coming back to Twitter because Elon bought it. That's from Guelph. Okay. And someone here in Ottawa. Hi, Graham. I've removed myself from Twitter. Too much negativity and I don't miss it. I must say when, you know, by the way, people are allowed to make mistakes, right? Are are we all going to come from the same space on this? That even on social media, you are allowed to make mistakes and take something back, right? The danger, of course, on all social media, particularly on Twitter, is you put something out as a half sentence and it immediately gets twisted or it's happened to me. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. People taking things places you did not mean them to take it. And, and you feel like, well, I've got to come out and clarify. And then, and then you try to clarify and it just makes it worse. More people pounce. I think a lot of people, um, seem to think that if you're a semi-public person or, you know, it's the scrutiny for politicians is much higher. You're not allowed to make mistakes. Um, I, I don't accept that. Do you? Like, I, do, I don't accept that. Like, and I'm not talking about specific issues or instances, but it seems that on Twitter and on social media for our public figures, that any slight mistake or tone change or it can, it can sometimes be fatal. And I, I think that's what turns a lot of people off these social media platforms. Like they're exposing themselves to the mob in some cases or to the public for positive things. Um, and the, the problem is, is that when they make that mistake or they have that, um, uh, they just get, they get swamped with negative comments. Obviously people like Elon Musk face that as well. All the politicians face it. And it's now just part of the job. I do know a lot of politicians who aren't running because of this. So this loops back to democracy, to the civic debate. Musk says he's taking over, he has taken over Twitter to make sure there's a digital town square that is healthy and fulsome debate where people aren't censored. That all sounds great, but, you know, within 24 hours of taking over the company, He has retweeted a fake story, a horrendous one, about the Speaker of the House's husband and the attack he faced, and suggesting that maybe uh, some of it might be true. You make up your own minds. And he owns Twitter now. Why can't they start a Twitter Twitter to platform and have everyone move over there away from Elon? Well, maybe. Twitter gets value from the fact that some of the people that post are verified, therefore have greater credibility. Democrats and the left will no longer have a major platform for their hypocrisy and stupidity. There's no 
monopoly on hypocrisy and stupidity on the political spectrum, my friend. It cuts both ways, of course. I find this total, this entire conversation hilarious. This is a private company and everyone acts like they own it and have a say in how it's run or how it operates. He bought the company and can do whatever he wants. Yes, he can. He wants to charge for certification, so be it. If you don't like it, then stop using it and go somewhere else. I personally think him taking over the platform is a good thing since it was pretty much completely useless before. I can't see it getting much worse. That's from Montreal. I, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he doesn't have the right to do this. He absolutely has the right to do this. This is his company now, and he's taking it private. Um, and and th- this is where, but this is where I disagree with you slightly. This is, this is not McDonald's. This is not, come on in and buy a burger and we'll give you the burger. Like, in many ways, this sways voters. Millions of people are using it, and it does have an impact on our democracy. I would argue that as a platform, Twitter is a very important, social media is a very important uh, tool and element of our democracy, and that's why we're watching it so closely. Stay with us. I'm Graham Richardson. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Two major pieces of uh, legislation or major breaking news anyway. The Ontario government uh, has just introduced uh, legislation imposing a contract on 55,000 education workers. The minister in Ontario, Stephen Lecce, uh, says his government has an unyielding commitment to keep kids in the classroom. They were set to strike on Friday. Um, they are far apart on wage proposals. The union looking for double-digit increases, in some cases, uh, 10 to 11 percent, depending on how you look at that. The government around 2.5 is their maximum offer. Um, major school boards had said that as of Friday, if they do go on strike, they're going back to online learning. Um, and that uh, obviously was not going to uh, sit well with, uh, with the government or with parents. Uh, after the last couple of years we've had. The other one that we're watching that's just moved in BC is a new deal for doctors in BC, um, a new agreement uh, raising their uh, family doctor take to their salaries uh, significantly, up to 385000 back from up from uh, 250000 I've always, you know, wherever you're listening across the country, you probably have a doctor shortage issue. And, you know, in the old days, like pre-COVID, uh, you know, small towns would have to do incentives for doctors to leave big cities. Um, they'd do cash incentives. They'd uh, offer, uh, we'll pay your student loans back, these sorts of things to entice doctors to move and to come to their rural areas or their smaller places, whether it was in Alberta, BC, Ontario, Quebec, this was happening. Even, you know, obviously in the Atlantic Canada too. Um, we're in a shift now where the big cities are also squabbling over doctors or scrambling to try to get doctors. And I just wonder where that's going to land, right? Like we have in Ottawa and parts of Toronto, I know this too, where there's like, there's like closed walk-in clinics. Like you have to line up to get an appointment at a walk-in clinic. And if you don't get there at a certain time, they only take X number of patients and then you're out of luck. In that environment, you know, like, how are you going to solve that? Well, you solve that with more doctors, but what if everybody is paying more for healthcare workers? 
Just outside of the city of Ottawa, Armprior just a few weeks ago was offering $25,000 bonuses for nurses. And there were five or six positions. You imagine you go into that workplace with one of those bonuses and a nurse that joined six months ago didn't get that bonus. Like th- these are the kinds of dynamics that are playing out all over the healthcare system. Um, and it, it extends to family doctors as well, as well. On the national level, BC has just raised its, its um, salaries for BC doctors. So is that enough to entice people West? And what does that do to people in Halifax or people in, uh, or health authorities in Northern Ontario that are trying to attract doctors? Can they compete and do they have the money? On salaries, this caught our eye as well. And I want your take on this. 71010. Should everybody know what everybody makes? New York City salary transparency law is about to go into effect. Now, here's what's going to happen. Employers advertising jobs in the city who have at least one employee, so basically everybody, have to include a good faith salary range. Um, is according to the New York City Commission on Human Rights, which is enforcing the law, they have to include a minimum and a maximum salary. Why are they doing all of this? Well, there have been disparities built into the systems that people of color, particularly in New York City and other cities, historically have received less than their white counterparts. The people who are pushing and pushed for this new law say it will be more equitable, meaning everyone will know what everyone makes. Other jurisdictions are doing this. Colorado, Connecticut, Nevada, California, Rhode Island, and Washington State in 2023. So the New York, this is just New York City, but companies complying with it, like it's New York City, Amazon, American Express, Citigroup, Zillow, you can see like all the big banks are going to have to do this. Um, Advocates for pay transparency say it's a game changer for city workers. In, in, in particular, those who face wage disparities, black and Latina women. Here's what one of them said. With salary ranges out in the open, employers must think critically how about, they, how about how they set pay at the front end of their process before they insert unconscious biases. At the same time, women and people of color have more leverage in, to advocate for themselves and more information to make better decisions about jobs and industries to pursue. That's Beverly Cooper Newfelt. Powher, New York, it's called. Powher, New York. Will this solve the problem, do you think? Text us at 7-10-10. I know a lot of people over the years who have been uncomfortable with Ontario and other provinces that have brought in uh, the Sunshine List back in the 90s, right? Anybody over $100,000 on the public payroll anywhere would have their name published. Now that is, of course, the list has grown because inflation and everything, you know, $100,000 back in the mid nineties is not $100,000 now. You've got all sorts of people on that list and nobody really cares, but you know, you've got your, you've got your power executives or your uh, hospital heads making 700 or $800,000 plus a bonus. And now you can see that. Um, what do you think, what do you think about that? Should, should we as a society know what everybody makes or are you of the opinion that that's private information and that full disclosure like this doesn't achieve what 
people expect it to achieve. Because as of now, if you think, take a look at my example of the sunshine list, $100,000 back in 1995 is not the same as it is today. So New York City going forward with the transparency list, I think, I think a listing of a job and a transparency of what the range of salary is, is not the same as someone having their name published in, in a, you know, after the fact, which, which is what their, uh, what their salary would be. Uh, we've got a call from Guelph. Ron's on the line in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Just, I don't understand the signing bonus thing. I'd rather have a retention bonus. You stay for six months. We'll give you this much money. That way everyone gets to participate. You keep the people you have. Yeah. And what do you think do about, what, did, what do you think about disclosing the range though? Should every job have a range when it's posted? I think any job that's in the public paid domain, like as far as paid by the taxpayer, yes. But it's a private company, no. Uh, I mean, we pay these people through our taxes. I have a right, I'm the employer. So yeah, that's, fair. That's my, yeah. But, but, but uh, private business, but a private business, you see it differently. Private business should be able to 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 make choices about salary based on other things exactly yeah now as far as the nurses are concerned my daughter just left to work in the states and the treatment she gets there is a hundred times better she says she says she sees older nurses on the floor they have more autonomy there's less management it's mm. it's it is a totally different world she she had to pay 14 dollars to park every day in ottawa when she went to work she doesn't get charged parking in the states i mean this is the treatment that why nurses are leaving they're they're getting they're getting hammered where did she go she she went to texas now she's doing a contract in michigan mm. so she can be closer to home i mean mm. it's it's ridiculous i hear you on that does she think about yeah. is she young do you mind me asking yeah she's 26 okay I mean, she's, like, is it forever she's uh, I don't, I don't know if yeah. she gets married down there, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my only thing with the States and I've lived and worked there is the factor of, you know, you do have to save for cancer and I know we've got problems here, but if you get a major illness, it's very different down there. Does she think about that or is she just too young? She, she thinks about it, but I mean, she's fully insured through her health plan through the hospital. And, and what happens is she, she has to pay up to 3000 for a critical illness and all the rest is covered. Fair enough. So all right, Ron. It's a big concern. Right. Thanks so much for the call. Ron called in about salaries and he gave us a little bit of a nugget about his daughter who left Ottawa, where we need nurses and everywhere needs, needs nurses, to head to the United States. We're seeing more and more of that. It reminds me of back in the 90s as well, where people were leaving to work in the healthcare system there. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. Stay with us. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Developments in Ontario. Boy, the... Um not only is the government introducing back-to-work legislation for a strike on Friday of education workers, 55,000 of them, QP says they're ignoring that and they're going out on Friday. The government not only uh, is using back-to-work legislation, they're also invoking the notwithstanding clause to <clears throat> essentially 
uh, override charter rights for labor. Um, someone commenting, this is the first time a government in Canada has used notwithstanding clause to override constitutionally protected labor rights. Um, so the two sides uh, are not exactly coming together in Ontario on education. We'll continue to watch it. Um, it is uh, it is Halloween, one of our favorite days of the year here, even though we haven't really had a Halloween-y kind of a show. I think it's because it's Monday. I always liked Halloween better when it's like a Saturday or Friday or Thursday night, one of those sort of weekend nights or towards the end of the week nights. But that's okay. The kids are going to have a good time tonight. It's great. And lots of parties this weekend. Uh, in that theme, in the West End of Toronto, a mansion was sold. It was 38 rooms, 38. And it's only $600,000. That's the sale price. There's a bit of a catch. Um, it used to be a funeral home. Heather Bloomberg is a Toronto woman who moved her family into a 38-room mansion. In Dresden, Ontario. Sorry, it's in Dresden, Ontario. And she joins us now. Um, this is very interesting, Heather. Um, you've got 38 rooms. How big is your family? <laughs> well, there's just the four of us. So my husband um, and my two teenage kids. But we have really big dogs. We've got Great Danes. They're huge. <laughs> okay. So you moved from the West End to, to, to Dresden in this home. And it is, it's you're going to be in a series called We Bought a Funeral Home. Is that right? That's correct. So uh, my plug is um, we bought a funeral home streaming on Discovery Plus right now. And it follows us from, yeah, moving from the West End of Toronto um, and the corporate world that we worked in to tiny little 2000 people, Dresden, Ontario, where we buy a funeral home and renovate it and have some surprises along the way, I guess you would say. Is it haunted? I've heard it's haunted. <laughs> it is very, very haunted. What's it like? Like, how many square feet is 38 rooms? Uh, it's 12,000 square feet livable space, and then we have basements and garages and other things as well. Wow. You know, wow. pokey little home. <laughs> um, and, and do you, do you, what are your plans for the home? Because obviously you're not going to have, keep it, are you going to keep 38 rooms in it? We are. Um, the rooms are actually very big, given mm -hmm. the, the square footage. There's no need to rip down any walls or anything like that. In fact, in a couple of places, we've put walls up to try and divide the space. Um, the original plan was that it would be just our family home. Uh, but we'll see where that goes. That Since the show started airing, we've had an awful lot of people express interest in holding events here or hiring it for various reasons. Um, so we'll see. We're, we're only halfway through the renovations, so lots of time yet. And what kind of a renovation are we talking about? Obviously, with a building that size and a home that size, everything is big, I would think. Uh, to, yes. The scale here is everything. To give you an idea, um, I built my kitchen and dining room and family room into what was called the chapel, where they held the services. And my island is um, just over 10 feet by 10 feet. So, you know, wow. things are pretty big here. <laughs> yeah. And um, so if people want to watch this, and by the way, have you done this kind of a thing before? Like, what's it like to have your life streamed online like this um it's 
absolutely crazy. We, we're not TV people. We have not done this before. Um, when we bought the house, there was a news article about the house selling and a production company tracked me down actually through LinkedIn and uh, said, hey, do you want a TV show? And we were like, yeah, sure, why not? And uh, next thing you know, we're actually in the thick of it filming. Um, it, it moved pretty quickly. Uh, but so far, people have been incredibly kind to us. We seem to have struck a chord with a lot of people that like to see, um, you know, design that's interior design that's a little bit different to the norm. Yes, I would say so. And what is <laughs> what is your favorite part of the house? Uh, probably my kitchen. Um, it's all black. It's beautiful, gorgeous stone. I mean, it's the stuff of dreams. I never actually believed I would be able to do something like this. Wow. And And... Are you going to tell me any stories about it being haunted? Oh, I've got a few. So we have um, we have some horrible footsteps that go on in the house that are super creepy. Um, the sound of walk- footsteps, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, nobody oh. there when we've checked. Um, you'll see in the show, they do reveal one of the, the ghost stories that we have. Uh, is that The lady in blue is a lady that's haunted the stairs of our house for many years. And actually, our daughter um, investigates and with some help finds out that one of the former resident's daughters uh, unfortunately had an accident and died on the stairs. So she's here. Wow. Um, yeah, we, we have some good stories. And you um, you you uh, believe this like this is you're living this. You, you don't you don't think that this is just your mind playing tricks. Well, for me, no, I do believe it. I I do. I haven't seen her, but I'm very open to it. Um, My daughter is all in. My husband will tell you um, that we're we're crazy and there's nothing going on. And our son will not even enter into the discussion. He's a hard no. Hmm. It's a divided household. Divided house. How old are your kids? Uh, Rafferty is 20 and Noah, our daughter, is 14. Okay, so, well, 14. It's not like, like that's, I was going to say, if you had toddlers ro- rolling around in there, it might be a little bit of a different scene at night, but they, they're kind of into this sort of project as a family. Oh yeah. They're fantastic. They, well, let me be clear. Noah is hilarious, super sarcastic, and she sort of gives us moral support. Um, no attention to projects whatsoever. Our son, as it turns out, is very, very handy. So he helps around the house with all the projects I have. He's turning into a great carpenter. So he's phenomenal. Well, and if people want to see this house develop and want to see the show, how do they find it? Uh, it's on Discovery Plus, which is an app a bit like your Netflix and other things. And it's streaming now. Well, good luck with the renovation. And living in Dresden, uh, it's, a, it's a little different than the West End of Toronto, especially in a 38-room home. Yes, it's, it's a tad different. <laughs> Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you. Bye-bye. There you go. Um, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. I don't know. Footsteps and a lady in a blue dress and God, like just the size of a place like that, what it would take. Um, we are monitoring breaking news in Ontario. Um, the education union, CUPE, is Canadian Union of Public Employees and also the Ontario Federation of Labour President. They are having a news conference right now live, and they are suggesting that they are going to ignore the government's, the Ontario government's back-to-work legislation, which they introduced today, and they will pass by 
Friday banning the strike. They say the strike will happen anyway on Friday. It's not clear how long it will go on. So this is a standoff at the OK Corral between organized education unions and the Ford government in Ontario. Um, The education minister has put out a social media video just a few moments ago talking about the importance of keeping classrooms open and operating, saying that they have offered a fair deal to the workers. Other union heads in the education sector coming to the defense of CUPE, um, ETFO is a larger union, um, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, 83,000 members. We unequivocally condemn the Ford government's imposition of concessionary contract on some of the lowest paid education professionals working in Ontario schools. They stand with CUPE and their right to strike for better pay and working conditions and not with a regressive government that is cloaking anti-labor legislation as being pro-education. This is the, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first union to come up for negotiation in Ontario. So here we go, folks. I'm Graham Richardson. News Talk Today returns in just a moment. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Happy Halloween. I hope your house is ready. All the trick-or-treaters coming out. On that theme, British Columbians, people in BC, apparently believe in the supernatural, the paranormal. Really? Um, Now, wait a second. Why did BC Hydro do this survey? I guess the flickering of the lights. Is this the way the BC Hydro gets in the news? It's smart. From October 4th to 7th, BC Hydro surveyed 1,000 British Columbians to see if they believed in the paranormal. Nearly half of them did. 34% believed in supernatural beings. 26% believe in ghosts. 14% have experienced dimming lights or unexplained experiences with electricity. 11% have experienced lights or appliances turning on or off on their own. 2% have experienced appliance appliances shaking or moving. Did they hit the on button? Really? Really? Okay, so our last guest was taking over a 38-room mansion that used to be a funeral home and is renovating it for a reality TV show. She insists the home is haunted. There's stories about people who've had terrible things happen to them in the home and they're still there. Do you believe in this stuff? I don't know. Like I, I think the internet age and the social media age in particular, the internet age has amplified this stuff to the point where, you know, Uh, Facts become, things become factual. Like, oh yeah, of course there's, this has happened. Of course there are haunted houses. I'm not dismissing it out of hand. I am quite skeptical. I am quite skeptical. What do you think? 7, 10, 10. G 
you believe in the paranormal? Do you think something's out there? Oh, by the way, that's separate. I do think something's out there. I think we are a speck in the universe. I cannot fathom the size of the universe that we're the only ones living on this little rock called earth. Like that just blows my mind. The notion that we would be the only place that was like this. Call me crazy, but this sort of ongoing after death life, the transfer of energy, the fact that people remain in buildings or in people's lives. I'm not so sure about that. Am I wrong? 71010, let me know. Do you believe in ghosts? Are they real? Are places haunted? Or is this just a series of folklore stories and tales that we tell each other to explain the boring and the mundane? I heard a creak upstairs and I went up there and there was no one there. I heard, I heard a scratching on the walls and 20 years ago, something happened that was related to scratching. Well, maybe it's a squirrel that's caught in the wall and maybe the, the house was settling and there was a creek and you're in an old, older house. Honestly, appliances shaking and moving. By the way, Samantha, our producer, I didn't realize BC Hydro had done this survey. That is actually very crafty to get into the news. I know, right? When I first read the article, I, I didn't really catch it at first because I, I yeah. was uh, drawn to the headline and then I read it further. I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's like, that's like guerrilla marketing, right? <laughs> right? Like it's like Halloween's coming. How do we get our company name out there? Let's do a poll on paranormal. Right. I, I'd like to be in on those meetings to try to get, to, and look at, it's working. We're talking about them on the radio. Well it done, is. BC Hydro. Well done. It worked. We're all, uh, we're all, uh, gullible, but what do you guys think? Seven ten ten. let us know. By the way, Samantha, do you believe in the paranormal? So I Some don't, yeah, I'd say for the most part, no. I mean, I've never had a personal experience with it, but I do know some of my friends have told me some stories about our uh, younger, friends and family. Are you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was gonna say friends and family have kind of, you know, I've heard some stories, but personally, uh, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical as Are well. younger people, your plugged in generation, do you think they're more open to this idea that something is out there I think ghost wise? So. I think so. I feel like there's a lot of um, Netflix shows or yeah. things on YouTube that, um, you know, with when you're scrolling on Twitter or Facebook, oftentimes things will pop up and then you get drawn into it. And then, you know, you you, know, you can just tweet something out and be like, I heard this story. I so did too. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's really easy to kind of share um, these types of things. So. And there's lots of content out there in a way that years ago you would have to search in dusty libraries for long hidden stories. It's all out there now. And of course the, not necessarily ghost stories, but there is that genre of ghost stories that has its own sort of reality based television. Like, look at this. We're talking to a woman who's doing a reality show based on a haunted house and a, a former funeral home. There's lots of those and people love it. People love it. So they mm -hmm. believe it. Um, I'm not so sure I do, but you know what, uh, what are ghost stories? I mean, what are ghosts? They're just they're just stories we tell each other, sometimes to scare, but also to trade back and forth 
something that we have in common, something that connects us. It connects us to the past. It connects us to places and to buildings and to people. Um, on haunted houses, they're very much real. I grew up in one, and I could tell you all kinds of stories that were just beyond anything you can explain. Hmm. Every thought we have is an electrical signal. People mistaking these feelings and tingles for that of your electric, electricity-based brain facing an unexplained electrical interface. Okay. You can't destroy energy, so what happens when we die? The energy has to go somewhere, doesn't it? I've heard that before. All right. Anyway, stories we're watching, the education strike and the developments in Ontario, also the doctor's deal in BC that's just been announced. More money in BC for family doctors. And what does that mean for doctors around the country? Uh, they've raised that from $250,000 to $385,000 um, in terms of a family doctor uh, group that can, uh, that's the maximum. So it's obviously higher than it was before. That is the new deal. Every province and city and region in the country under extreme pressure to try to bolster their healthcare reserves their healthcare um, employees, the workforce, whether it's nurses, doctors, emergency rooms. And so the problem we're going to have is they're going to keep, they're going to be keeping a, a competition between each other and we're going to have a talent fight and it's not going to help the larger problem, which is healthcare in the country. There are two stories today, one gut-wrenching story today about the healthcare system and elderly parents that we're going to follow up with, a woman in Ottawa who has, her parents are basically homeless in their 90s, the long-term care home or the retirement home can't take them back, they're in hospital, they have nowhere to go, and so many people are facing that as our population ages. This was News Talk Today, I'm Graham Richardson, back tomorrow. Hope you can join us, thanks so much. 